0: Coming to you from a rigged Domja table. This is Politrex. everybody To episode seven of Politrex. We are so glad that you have come here. Polytrax, of course, is a member of the Tricorder Transmissions Podcast Network, and we are very, very excited about today's episode. My name is Barry DeFord, and with me, as always, is my often imitated, never replicated Mr. Shashank Avaru. How are you doing tonight, Shashank?
1: Namaste, Homo sapiens. Pattern pending on their trademark, but I will get there. I'm good, man. How are you?
0: Well, man, like, just so excited to get this episode rolled out. We're actually going to be doing something a little bit different this uh, this week. We are going to be foregoing the news, though there are lots of uh, always interesting things happening in the news these days. We thought just the length of the interview that we had going this time around, we would forego the news so that we wouldn't be talking your ear
1: off for longer than an hour and a half. Is that all right with you, Mr. Avaru? It's more than all right. I genuinely think the awesomeness and the intellectual joy in that interview is so incredible and s- just so rich. I don't think we should tamper with it in any way. I I think we should just let this episode be about the interview and our interviewer. And I just am very excited for everybody to hear it. I was just sitting as part of the interview and my mind was blown so many times it was like that one episode where the enterprise keeps blowing up over and over but that was my mind and i'm just i'm just very excited for uh, everyone to hear it so on that note just because the interview is so good i think skipping the news on this one is a good idea
0: agreed so with that folks we will not waste any time onward with our interview Everybody, to our main topic. I'm very excited, and so is Shashank, to welcome our first guest on Politrex, and that is the illustrious Mr. Manu Sadia. He was born in Paris and was a very early-aged Star Trek fan. And you can hear the story of that uh, both on the podcast in a few moments, and also if you pick up his book available at fine retailers everywhere. He studied history of science and economic history in both Paris and Chicago, and he has been featured with his book on several different publications. So we are very excited today to have as our first guest Mr. Manu Sadia.
1: Manu wrote, which is now one of my favorite Star Trek books, uh, it's called Trekonomics. And the best way to introduce it, I think, is just to read a passage from the book. It is almost a paradox to, to state it this way. But in a society where nothing is scarce and consequently where work is no longer a prerequisite for survival, finding good reasons to work becomes paramount. The defining existential question that everyone has to ask themselves, why work at all if it's not necessary? Because learning, making, and sharing is what makes life in the Federation worth living. Work, no longer a necessary burden, is the glue that holds the Federation together. Hey, Manu. Hi. Thanks for having me. The pleasure is all ours. We are very excited to have you as our first guest. And before we get Deep into the weeds about economy and all the things concerning Trekonomics. If you had to tell someone about this book in three or three sentences or less, what, how how would you how would you pitch it? What would you say?
2: Uh, I would just say, Star Trek, among many of its uh, qualities, is a very strange utopian world, and I think that is what makes it so unique and. Um, uh, uh, intensely loved by fans And so the book is about uh, The social organization Of the world of Star Trek uh, And so it's economics uh, And I wanted to uh, Dive deep Into how that actually works In the background So so it's about the plumbing Of the Star Trek universe And uh, What makes it so Intriguing to use a a trite word. And, you know, since Live Long and Prosper is is the Vulcan salute, I wanted to um,
1: figure out what does that mean in a world where money doesn't seem to exist. Wonderful, wonderful. So where did the idea for this book come from? Uh, So originally, I mean, this is something as a fan I've been
2: discussing with other fans for a very long time. Uh, I carried that with me for, you know, almost 20 years. And uh, uh, the inciting event, so to speak, is uh, my neighbor used to uh, write and produce on Star Trek Enterprise. And uh, we were knocking down a few beers, and uh, and we're like, okay, so everything's been written by Star Trek, and uh, I was like, as I, you know, and I wondered, have you heard of anything about the economics, which seems to be like a pretty big deal in Star Trek? And he was like, oh no, and uh, and then he was like, why don't you do it? I was like, okay, so it was almost on a dare, I would say. Yeah, it was on a dare. It was kind of like, okay. I'll I'll do that because I, I know a little bit of economic history, so that. So that's how it came about. And then I realized that, you know, there was a little more to it. Uh, and in a way, it, it, it was for me a, a, how should I say that? As a fan, I wanted to give back to the community and to this cultural artifact that has nourished me for so long. Um, so it was my way to, uh, introduce myself into the conversation and, um, add a little more. To the great discussion
0: that is fandom. So early in the book, um, you mentioned something along the lines of coming to Star Trek as a as a person who who identifies as a minority. I myself, being a Anglo-Saxon Euro-Canadian North American <laughs> eighteen to thirty-five year old, I'm not one of those. And both you and Shashank share that in terms of being minorities uh, in terms of your uh, ethnicity and cultural heritage. I wonder if you could maybe tell me and tell the audience a little more about the minority experience, and, and Shashank, I wouldn't mind asking you the same question uh, too, and and just sort of see where that goes.
2: Uh, I think um, I don't know about you, Shashank, but I mean, I well, I you know, I grew up as a as a as a Jewish dude. My my father's Israeli. We're all like very Mediterranean. We have an Arabic Arabic name. France is not exactly the most enlightened. Uh, country in the world as opposed to Canada. Um, and I'm actually not joking. Uh, so yeah, I mean, my, my experience was, uh, I, I was a little alienated from my surroundings. Um, and finding refuge is a common experience when, when you, you grow up, you know, not like everybody else or being reminded that you're not like everybody else, even though you are like everybody else. So that, that's, uh, you know, science fiction for me. I mean, it was Star Trek, of course, but, um, since, you know, this was like the early eighties, there was not much Star Trek either on TV in France or, you know, in the wider media world. Um, and science fiction was really something that was marginal. Uh, so I found in science fiction a, a way for me to understand the world and uh, cope with it. And you know, I, mean, I was I was a kid. I was like nine years old, eight years old. So uh, uh, these are also things that uh, really impress upon you when when you're you're so young because your imagination is is flowering and and full of energy. Uh, so I picked up on that that that, and that helped me actually cope with not being like everybody else. I mean, the dirty secret here is that. Everyone's special and unlike anybody else. But if, if you belong in the majority, then, you know, you can always pretend that you're like everybody else. I think that's, that's, that's how I rationalize it now, you know, that I'm much older. Uh, but at the time, yeah, I mean, it, it was for me, uh, a, a, a way to exist in the world that was reparative, uh, restorative uh if if that makes sense
1: yeah that's a that's a great point the the one thing that you said that intrigued me the most is where if you are the majority you have the luxury of feeling like you might be like someone but as a brown man from india in america <laughs> by necessity i have to be different and i have yes. to find something that celebrates what it is to be different and what it is to be outside of what people think is the norm
2: yeah and it's actually it's it's absolutely true and uh, uh I would add to that uh, uh in a way you know science fiction star trek it makes it cool to be like outside the norm or or to not belong to the sort of like uh uh very well defined not consensus but yeah majority uh, and and it's cool like it's, it's just so, so it made me feel like, you know, I was cool because I had some kind of secret knowledge that others don't have. So maybe, you know, I'm kind of brownish, but <laughs> you know, I, 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 I know things that you don't. And that's, and in a way, you know, it, it dovetails with the experience also of, of not being necessarily in the norm. Like you know, something that the others don't. That's so, so that, that's, I want to, I, I want to talk about it in a positive way because to me it was positive like star trek was the positive side and 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 made me feel star trek and i should say science fiction more generally that was the positive side of my childhood uh that's really what i what i still cherish today much more so than anything else
1: uh growing up in india Entertainment it tends to be very conservative there. They, they, We are still not allowed to show kisses on screen. We are still not allowed to let characters cuss on screen. So when we had an overflow of entertainment that was so streamlined, mm. I discovered on TV that a show came out in the 60s in America that already were celebrating differences and they were pushing for boundaries. And so that's how I ended up falling in love with Star Trek is realizing, oh, wait, there is this entire franchise that actually wants to keep pushing boundaries and it wants to celebrate People who come in with from the left field and say, "Oh, that's not how it's supposed to be done." <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. and, and, and you're like, "You can do that? Really? You can do that?" Oh, that's the yeah.
2: <laughs> Wait, but but like, do they do they have Star Trek in India now? Or I mean, I suppose they do. Like, it's it's they have Netflix, so they must have Discovery.
1: I know for a fact that they do have Star Trek Discovery and i know on cable people can occasionally find episodes of the original series and the next generation but it's it's uh abridged to match our society standards so if there is a kiss on the show they won't show it if there is uh, a certain character saying something untoward they would they would not show something like that like even words like ass or anything, wait yeah, but they some... never say that on star trek right do they i mean no 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 uh, but, but I guess
2: the episode where uh, Data and Tasha and Yar have a relationship will probably be cut. <laughs> okay. It's right.
1: Uh, things like that. And the episode where uh, Daxon ends up uh, kissing another woman, that would never be shown.
2: Oh, wow. Still now. That's interesting. Okay. Interesting. That's cool.
1: So do, do you think your experience as a minority influenced a lot of your viewpoint in Treconomics? Oh. Do, do you think, had you, had you been a separate, from a separate uh, uh,
2: Okay, so let, let me put it differently, uh, if I may rephrase. Uh, the, the, the central experience of my life when I was a kid was uh, to be in a family of um, very leftist parents. So that took pre- precedence over, I would say, the 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 more identity side of things. Like our identity was was bound up in, um, you know, my parents were yeah they were leftists, so so and all their friends were leftists, and um, I you know I learned to, to sing the international before I learned the Marseillaise, so that that's that's my experience. Um, more, you know, and and later on in life, I I learned a little bit more, but that's more, I would say, what informed uh, what I saw in Star Trek, and I uh, what I tried to write up, which is, you know, it's very close to um, Star Trek is very close to to what you can find in Herbert Marcusa, for instance, so um, Frankfurt School Marxist theory, so that so that's more what informed what I, w- what I put in the book even though i I don't spell it out um directly um and also because i i personally I, I really like Keynes and I think there's a lot of Keynes in star trek as well so um john maynard Keynes, the 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 great british economist so that so that's more the polarities in there than a more uh, than than it's a product of you know i would say my my upbringing uh in crazy Commie, Paris. And and by the way, you know, like at the time in the 80s in Paris, be, being the, you know, basically a red diaper baby was nothing exceptional at all. Uh, it's, it, it was more like the norm than anything else. So, um, yeah, that, that's, that's more my, my, uh, my experience my parents friends and you know associates and all that they were all foreigners from you know Latin America and Greece and places like that, that you know in Spain um so places with a history of struggle uh and a history of uh, um struggle against more dictatorial forms of capitalism some of my friends when i was a kid had you know escape Chile and stuff like that. So Holy cow. So the, well I mean you know Chile Argentina a lot of people left for France. Yeah. So yeah, that that's that's the environment in which I grew up. And it wasn't I don't think it was particularly special uh just because Paris was a place where you know a lot of these uh I would say upper class uh highly educated uh, young families found refuge.
1: Absolutely. Uh, so that's
2: that's more that that's that's more along those lines. I would say that that's that's where I come from. Uh, and then, you know, I left for the United States to study. So I I sort of completely turned my back on all this, but um, not turned my back, but, you know, I sort of left. So that that's that's where I, you know, OK, there's that. And then I was also uh uh for a time in, my, in when I was a kid uh, I was you know in the in the Zionist socialist youth movement so that's where I learned the international and uh you know we read about Stalin <laughs> they were very very uh I mean <laughs> it's, it's not the most glorious but uh, it's a youth movement that has a history of uh resisting nazis and founding a bunch of kibbutz kibbutzim in Israel, so, um, you know, Jewish lefties basically. That that's me. That that's where I come from, Jewish internationalist lefties. That's,
0: yeah. You're among you're among good company with the, uh, with the folks of of Jewish descent who who have contributed to you know socialist anarchist, you know,
2: communist I, it, literature. It's uh, so, I, I I I called my son Lazar. Uh, In in honor of Bernard Lazar, who who is this great French Jewish anarchist who uh, was the first to alert to the situation of Captain Dreyfus, who was unjustly accused of uh, treason in favor of Germany. So he's a a big figure in the French anarchist movement. Yeah, and Zola uh, was in that too. Yes, Yeah, he, he was Zola's best friend. And also he was very good friends with uh, Sigmund Freud. Yes. Uh, so yes. So Bernard Lazare. I, I I'm I'm kinda I, I'm kinda surprised that uh, you guys know about Bernard Lazare. That's pretty cool. Okay.
1: Oh so sure. thanks. We we do a little <laughs> bit of eating. A bit. <laughs> just just a touch. No, but I didn't know he was that famous. Uh, so yeah.
2: That's cool. Okay. I'm I'm Respect. making
0: I'm making my way through Bakunin right now, so I'm
2: uh, okay. I'm- so okay. Okay. So so you see where I come from. Oh, uh, yes, pretty much so. And so you can imagine why Star Trek like totally connected with me, uh, because it was basically on screen what my parents and their friends were talking about, you know, late at night, uh, drinking wine and smoking cigarettes. So yeah, it has this sort of like, let's remake the world type of vibe. Um, so it made sense. It made a lot of sense.
0: So, in in the way of of that, I, I think this is maybe a good segue to to talk a bit about um, you know the concept of Star Trek as a society being being one of post scarcity, and and how you know we talk about the replicator. I know we were going to talk about this later before we'd ask all these other questions, but it just sort of feels like. You know the way this the right place, yeah, yeah. We're, we're just in the right spot for it, and so you talk so much about the replicator, and you you use you use it in different iterations during you know during the the different major topics of the book, and so. I'm wondering if, if maybe we could talk a bit about the idea that, you know, we don't have a replicator right now. We're, we're getting close, right? 3D printing's getting stronger. I would say that genetically modified food to a degree sort of works some, somewhat as a replicator and mass production and all that sort of stuff. But um, maybe we could start a conversation drawing a, a comparison between the replicator in Star Trek and a culture of sustainability that might, I guess, could be informed by, um, by some of your, your politics in the past. What would you say if we were to talk about maybe, you know, the replicator as a metaphor for sustainability? What are some of your thoughts to that? that
2: uh, that's coming out of left field, and that's really cool. Um, so, so it sort of connects with the idea of technology as a good or as a benefit, I, the way I view the replicator is this sort of metaphor for the end of the industrial revolution, so that long arc whereby human labor becomes uh supplemented and then replaced by mechanical implements uh and at the end of that long multi secular process, we humans no longer have to do any of the tasks that we had to do previously to sustain ourselves. Um, and so, in a way, the replicator, if you view it as a, an engine of progress, um, it, it is in Star Trek, it, it is that it is the sort of the, the end point. Or the other side of the mountain of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, What we know of the Industrial Revolution itself um, and of that long process of uh, augmenting and supplementing human labor by machines is that it's incredibly wasteful uh, and that we're actually not paying the real price of that waste. The benefits, however, seem to uh, far outweigh the costs so far. Even though uh, at this point we're starting to realize that the sum total of human activities um, is is endangering the very climate and the the carbon cycle in the atmosphere, we're, we're injecting so much uh, um, additional carbon in the atmosphere that we're raising the temperature. Um, so that's what we're dealing with here. Is like is the end point of the industrial revolution um a system in which the production of goods and the transformation of raw materials into finished products uh, whether it's you know clothing or food or technology can that process be so efficient that it will not pollute anymore or it will not uh, waste is, is there is there a point at which producing out of raw material does not create entropy? Uh, because that's what we're talking about. the waste heat uh, and the waste product is is entropy. And that I think you know, if if we're talking in the real world, because in the world of Star Trek, obviously, they have resolved all these problems. the the there are no externalities that is, there are no uh, consequences and uh, effects on third party of economic activity. Like the an externality.
0: Yeah, the crisis yes, of the uh,
2: commons is at an end kind of idea. It, it's been solved. At least that's, the, that's what they posit in Star Trek. Uh, they, they found a way. So in the real world, can you imagine producing everything in a sustainable fashion? It's hard to tell. And and also it's it's particularly hard to tell. Here's why: because um, it's probably not the most economically rewarding to actually produce energy or produce goods in a way that's sustainable. The market is heavily skewed towards uh, waste. Um, you want to produce the cheapest. Um, I was reading today about that. That uh, about. Rare earth metals. So you need that to uh, make batteries and various technological gizmos, and it's very important for electric cars. Uh, the The mining of rare earth metals in in China is a nightmare. It's, it's an ecological nightmare. They are in very uh, small quantities, locked into larger minerals and you know sediments, and uh, you have to separate them, and that takes a lot of energy. And uh, a lot of adjuvants, and it's very dirty. So can we, in the real world, imagine a a point at which, under the current economic system, we will reward sustainable production? I mean, the jury's still out. We'll, we'll see, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but so, I, I, I wouldn't hold,
1: like, a lot of uh, hope that's... <laughs> Manu, what uh, what intrigues me more is how the political landscape of our world would change if mm. uh, a nation decides to just privatize and say things like, essentially puts out a statement saying, now we can just make Earl Grey tea hot, which, by the way, is also a chapter in Economics, available mm. in paperback, hardback, and Kindle edition. Mm. If a nation says we now have a replicator, what, how would, would the political landscape change with the power dynamics? Of-
2: uh, all right. So I will, I will turn that around first. first. First part of the answer, I will turn that around. We do have enough today, as it is, we do have enough to actually provide for everybody. Right? So that's right. what the replicator does.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, the replicator uh, does actually provide for everybody on the basis of a public good. So it's a public good. It belongs to everybody. Um, but we do today uh live in that world of post-scarcity, except <laughs> uh it's not evenly distributed. So that's one point. I I'm I'm pretty confident that we could feed all the planet today. So that's something to think about. Now I believe that making the the instruments that allow for uh full provision of food, clothing, uh, the necessities of life, healthcare, education. Uh, the, the deciding as a society to provide all these basic necessities for free is an eminently political decision about the distribution of wealth. And it's not a technological challenge. It's not even a matter of inventing the final replicator. I don't believe that. I, I, and by the way, here's a, here, I, I'm not the only one. Um, you know the Ferengis, In Deep Space Nine, like they use replicators, Mm -hmm. uh, but they make you pay for it. Yeah. And it's, and (laughs) and it's fantastic because, you know, they're, they're like, they don't unionize like, like the bartenders in, in Quark's bar, the replicators, like they're just there and, and they're basically, uh, cash machines for the bar owner. So. The technology, even in Star Trek itself, is available to every society, but some make you pay for it. So it's pretty clear that it's not a matter of technology, even in Star Trek itself. It's a matter of political decision. The Vulcans, the Federation, you know, the the people we know and love in Star Trek, they don't really care about getting rich. And so the decision, I mean, it's not clear what comes first, right? Like, But it seems that a decision was made at some point to allow uh, for the provision of basic necessities of life uh, freely and as a public good. The decision was made. It was a political decision. That's not, never quite said like that in track itself, but that's the only uh, logical deduction you can arrive at uh, when you look at all the available evidence. And so it, it's, it puts us in front of – a or it puts a mirror to our face, I would say, um, and it asks us the question, so why don't we decide as a society so an so incredibly wealthy society at that, like when we're talking about uh, the developed world, why don't we decide to distribute wealth in society in a different way i have a I have a Canadian response to that. I <laughs> well, I mean, Canada is close to Star Trek, man, I mean, isn't it? um yes no uh we are we are in the sense that we we
0: are in the sense that we've come a long way in our social programs especially concerning uh healthcare of course and that's the big mm. conversation in the united states right now now keep in mind we have the, the same amount of people who live in the new york city area live in all of Canada. So we are dealing with a 34 million person population and the United States is 330 some odd million. So we're, we're dealing with a much different thing now. Single pale single payer healthcare would 100% work in your country. And I, yeah, like, I mean, other countries are also living proof. It's, you know, it's going to take some bureaucracy and stuff to make it work. But I believe in you all, and it'll work. But uh, <laughs> the, the the thing I was going to talk about, just, just to sort of respond to your statement there, uh, Manu, is in my, um, I did a, a, a social geographic, or what is it called now? I've lost the name of it. It's uh, like, like looking at uh, human geography. And basically mm. what happened is, is, and you guys might be familiar with this type of treat. Have you get, Canadian listeners will know precisely what a Timbit is. And it's, it's a little tiny ball, which is a donut. It's like the donut hole, if, mm-hmm. if say, that yep. was it. So our professor came in with enough Timbits... Like, he came in with boxes and boxes. Like, he must have spent at least $100, maybe $200, to feed the 400-person class. And the 400-person class was divided into thirds. So there was one third, a larger sort of middle third, and then Mm. another third kind of on the other side. And he divided us up into the developed, developing, and undeveloped world. And he gave everybody in the developed world, which... Interestingly, I found myself in again, um, both in real and in Mm. quasi, you know, fake, you know, human geography class. We all got four Timbits, these little donut holes. The people Mm. in the developing world all got one Timbit each. And then for the undeveloped world, he presented a single Timbit for probably 150 kids and a plastic knife to which immediately the one boy, or not boy, I mean, he would have been in his 20s, but I, I find I call university students kids now. Mm-hmm. Um, he jumped up and grabbed his pla- the plastic knife and the Timbit and brandished it to all like the 149 people and told them all to back off. And I thought that that was a... <laughs> Nice <laughs> which coordination. Did, yeah. It's the problem of coordination, right? Yeah. And so then he said, you know, how many of you in the developed world would like to like to pass out another, you know, two of your timbits? Because I actually have enough here so that everybody could have two timbits. Mm-mm. And the funny part is, is most of the people in the quote-unquote developed world had already eaten most of their Timbits. They were gone. And they're like, well, we can't now because we've consumed it all. And so I think that's interesting how you've, you've, you've really brought home this case that, you know, what we do is so very wasteful. And, and once it's gone, it's unfortunately gone. And so that's, a, that's another thing I think we sort of talked about in our previous episode hmm. about are we hitting a point in the concept of the crisis of the commons for those for those listeners who don't know what the crisis of the commons is it's basically resources outpacing consumption and if we think about short term Uh, uh, the other way around oh yeah consumption outpacing resources thank you (laughs) short term uh, (laughs) short term it's always good to take as much as you can because that maximizes your your profit but long term it makes much more sense to to equalize how much everyone is consuming Mm -hmm. to ensure that the resources remain sustainable and so it's funny because we had a crisis of the commons right then and there as well, because so many students in the, in the yes. 400 person classroom had already consumed it. And so I wonder as a sort of a, a, a necessity that, that shows up in star Trek itself, do we need to go through horrific, horrific cataclysm to get ourselves into a star Trek area? Of course they had their, their world war three that they always talk about. Do we have to have our, our world war three before this can happen?
2: I, I was, um, I was reading about how, in history, usually great redistribution, great episodes of wealth redistribution, come after major wars. <laughs> so that's 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 not very um, uh, propitious. Uh, but when I mean, when you think of the experience of Europe, for instance, it took World War II and and the cataclysm of World War II to uh, bring about real social democracy in Western Europe. And even then, you know, uh, Spain and Portugal and Greece (laughs) did not really enjoy uh, the full benefits of it until much later. So it takes, it seems that it takes these, historically it has taken these dislocations, millions of people dead. I mean, I I did study a lot of the uh, revolutions in the past 200 years, So you do have these dislocations and revolutions. Uh, Think about the Mexican Revolution, for instance. Mm -hmm. Extremely bloody, absolutely terrible. But at the end of the process, uh, the land has been redistributed. And there has been a shift in the base of power in society. And it's uh, more more equal than it was before. So it seems that our historical experience up to now has been that wars are very bloody and it's wars and cataclysm and social cataclysms that lead to these uh massive changes in the structure of wealth. Um, on the other hand, since 1945, uh, it seems that slowly but surely uh, a, a, an embryo of international order has emerged whereby wars gets less bloody and... We are able to manage a sort of, uh, um, slow rise in, in, uh, social wealth for everybody. I mean, it's, it's not without problems, obviously. I mean, you know, but look at what China has achieved in, you know, 30 years or South Korea. I give that example in the book, but South Korea, you know, went from basically rubble and nothing to, uh, the most advanced, probably the most advanced country in the world today, um, in less than 60 years. So, it might be doable i i have good hope that it might be doable without war we might be able to do this of course you know failure is always an option but we might be able to reorganize society without as much violence as in the past if only because uh we've learned about it and we know it's it's not necessarily the most efficient way to do it now who can tell? <laughs> I, I really hope we don't get into World War Three. I re- I really hope it's it's just a bad idea all around, and probably it, it's not worth going into World War Three to redistribute something as trivial and uninteresting as wealth. Uh, but it, <laughs> that's that's the way I see it. But you know, who knows? Uh, <laughs>
1: You also bring up an interesting point about how change is possible on such a large scale without violence. But to that, I say, look at the current state of world affairs and how it seems like we are backtracking and very deliberately, there is a, there is a vocal uh, population all mm-hmm. around the world that is saying, let's go back to the way these things were. Like sp- specifically, we can we can talk about how <laughs> one administration <laughs> that,
2: yeah that's that's where star trek fans are important i mean it sounds stupid to say said this way but uh i think that's where you know things like star trek are important uh because it 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 carries the flame or in the torch of you know a more liberal and nonviolent way of doing things it, you know accepting diversity and uh, uh bringing everybody into the great family of humanity Uh, on an equal footing, I think that that's where, I mean, we're we're, being a Star Trek fan or Star Trek in general, like it's, it's a real minority of the minority of the minority, but the people who who form the fandom are usually in position of power in various important places, you know, that shape policy and shape uh, opinion. So I, I think this is where, you know, is important, this is also why I personally bemoan, uh, uh, how much dystopian science fiction is in fashion these days because i i think there's there's a sense that at least to me a good public service would be to do more of the star trek type of popular culture than uh x-files although i love the x-files but yeah <laughs> <laughs> it seems we're in the x-files we wanted star trek and it seems that we're in the x-files these two shall pass. I hope.
1: <laughs> oh, Manu, I, I think we are like twenty years away from uh, the Cylons and Battlestar Galactica. That's oh how God. that's how gruesome I think the situation is. Oh Barry God. might <laughs> think I'm too alarmist, but that's just me. Now, I, I you get a point. Um,
2: technology is going at a very fast pace. Yeah. It's it's almost like that's where you realize. You know, um, I was trying to to process. What it means for a show like Discovery to be a prequel. And I think part of it is that science fiction as, as a, as a terrain to explore the possibilities of technology and, you know, future technology is no longer as relevant as it was because it's the technology is going faster than what you can imagine. So it's, it's one of these things where, yes, I, I, I'm very worried. And by the way, you know, the book itself, while it was done on a dare, was also um, written, you know, uh, as a way to s- combat depression. <laughs> so um, it's it's uh, – it's, I'm trying to uh, disentangle a world where most of the, the problems have been solved. And in a way, it's because the world we live in is riddled – with impossible problems that's why it was that's where i was going with with this but yes
0: so in that respect you've also mentioned that you know when you when you kind of peel back the layers Mm. of the federation you've got very much an open society and one that Mm. almost feels kind of banal and and how it you know to have a well-functioning society where where people have that kind of feeling of sort of Mm. I said like a quasi-Hegelian actualization that the day-to-day workings of things do sort of kind of like, you don't have to worry about food because there will be food. You don't have to worry about shelter because there Mm. will be shelter and everything kind of feels sort of almost boring or banal or or sort of, sort of basic, I guess like. I guess it doesn't make for good TV,
2: Uh, (laughs) you know, like showing happy people all day long. Like, yeah, that wouldn't make for good TV, but Um, you know, think about it, think about it this way. And I mentioned that in the book, poverty in the real world, poverty has tremendous impacts on child development and brain development, stress, Mm -hmm. uh, financial stress, um, is, is incredibly, uh, uh, detrimental, not only to, you know, your well-being in terms of, actual nourishing yourself eating, but it's also extremely detrimental to your state of mind. Um is it's and I kind of know that because we were not always uh you know as fortunate as we are now in my family. Um so this is something that the Federation is a world where nobody has to worry about that stuff. So everybody's sort of uh, uh in a good state of mind except for you know Barclay Depression still exists, um, but the object of depression is no longer uh, uh, necessarily centered around basic questions or basic uh, anx- anxieties about will I be able to afford rent next month or will I be able to do more than one meal or feed my children. So that's something you know to aspire to, I think, uh, if only for the mental health benefits. Now... Um, a word like that is probably people usually object, oh, yeah, but, you know, you'll have nothing to strive for. You know, it, it's, when you say boring, it's also it feeds, I, I, not you, but in general, when people say, oh, it's going to be boring. It's, it also feeds into this notion that you need to strive for something to, to actualize yourself, to, to be somebody in life.
1: I mean, Maybe, yeah, it somehow feels like the, in the world, the only two choices are boredom or suffering. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, in
2: the name of, uh, some superior motives and delayed gratification. I, you know, I'm not so sure. I'm not, for me, at least. And, and that's why, you know, I'm, I'm a hardcore Star Trek person. I don't believe there's such a thing as human nature. Uh, I think it's completely fungible as a concept and as a, as an experience. And we respond to incentives in a way that's normal and, I, I strongly believe that we don't need to strive for uh, wealth or uh, achievements to actually be happy. I don't. I don't believe that. Um, I believe that's that's an ideology of uh, that that comes from an, a a place uh, an ideological place. It's a construct. It's something that that's all new in, in the world. That you need to work and work hard to make money to you know advance in the world and to be better than your neighbor. Uh, this is this is something recent. Uh, this is this is the the world of the bourgeoisie. This this is two hundred years old. Um, it doesn't have to be that way. And and Star Trek presents a world where it's not that way. And yes, um, I'm pretty sure that a TV show that would be centered on uh, everyday life on the Federation planet, where people go about their business and um, have philosophical discussions, and you know build parks and uh, public art, or you know tinker in their garage. Uh, it would be so profoundly boring. So what you get on Star Trek is the 1% of people who are a little crazier than the rest and who go into Starfleet because they want adventure uh, of a different kind. See, I'm not so sure that even, and I don't know, but I'm not so sure that even Starfleet, like the other people in in, in the Federation, the billions and billions that we don't see, they probably, not they don't see Starfleet very often and they probably don't, find it particularly appealing as a life calling as a, you know it's like why would i want to go you know meet new life and new civilizations when you know life is pretty good here
1: yeah that's, when i could just be hanging out on the beaches at risa exactly quoted in your book yeah yeah and 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 yeah i mean that's right it's
2: association. when when you're associated with 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 the world and Like it it takes it's special people who are in Starfleet who who will go to fight and die uh, occasionally. So that's what you see in the show. But in in real life, like, you know, for instance, politics in Star Trek in in the Federation is very perfunctory because once you have solved the conflicts around the allocation of goods in society, um, what is politics left for? Well, what's the point of it? It's the administration mostly because um, if there's no issue about allocating this or that particular piece of material or food or whatever, then, or resources in general, then, then what, what's, I mean, politics is mostly uh, diplomatic. It's diplomacy. Um, that's why you have so many diplomats in the Federation because you have to deal with other civilizations that are not as enlightened but other than that yeah i mean the the uh, it, it, do you know what it – and i discussed that in the book a little bit it really resembles the society that asimov describes in robots of dawn uh, so i don't know if you guys read it uh, it's it's one of these novels from the mid 80s and so you have like this the 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 policeman from earth who, who goes to the planet uh, the Spacers planet where uh, there are robots everywhere and everything's taken care of. And uh, most of the people who live there are sort of bored with life and they live in opulence and, and fully automated opulence. And Asimov makes a, a sort of a, a moral judgment about it. He, 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 he deems it, well, the, the boredom actually leads to a murder and uh, he, he deems it morally wrong. But that's Asimov. But he describes it, nonetheless, as a sort of this utopian place. It's it's the Federation, and except instead of replicators, it's it's uh, positronic robots. But it's it's what it is. I I wouldn't mind living there. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> ten thousand robots for me. I wouldn't mind. I I think it would be uh I would I think it would be fantastic. I'd be happy to be bored. Um, that's how I, that's how I look at it. Um, me, I'm too old for Starfleet, but, uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd be happy. I'd be happy. I say, I think this is something to strive for on earth, That that's where I want to lead. Um, that, that was also the point of the book.
0: <laughs> so again, that, that kind of, that kind of brings in this, this idea that, that people, people in the Federation day to day tend to, just basically work for themselves and work to better their society and maybe even just sort of their immediate community. And like I'd mentioned, there's sort of a a reference to kind of a reference to Hegel of self actualization being the main driver, but could such a drive Mm. be enough to check those people, say like Bashir's parents who, who augmented Bashir, Mm. who would cheat to get their aims and end up in these more glorified, you know, societally, superstar sort of positions like Starfleet uh, maybe mm. as they would see a false uh, actualization as a denial of their place in say like the federation do you think that that sort of thing might be a challenge much like how we have, have like insider trading in in the stock markets right now and all that sort of stuff
2: hmm. yeah th- dealing with cheaters I find the federation very um the way for instance they deal with Bashir's father who basically breaks the cardinal rule of the federation which is everybody's equal there's no cheating um, I, I find the way they deal with him very uh, merciful it seems that I mean in the dialogue and that's a, it's a very good episode for that you know, it's, it's uh, where Worf for instance thinks this is the worst thing you can do and he's right this is the worst thing you can do in, in track. And it seems though that a lot of I mean, the vast majority of the citizens of the Federation do not entertain such behaviors. So it seems that um the, the constraint or the moral restraint not to do it is deeply internalized in 99.9% of the people. Um it seems to me. The 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 federation seems to be incredibly moral and the citizens seem to be incredibly moral and, um, animated by a sense of justice that is deeply ingrained in them. Uh, and that's sort of idealistic, but you know, not impossible, but it's, it's very idealistic. The, the notion that the sense of justice could be so widely shared and, um, Equally internalized, and I, I think you know the the show wants to demonstrate the best of uh, of what's possible, even with with some blemishes. <laughs> I, that makes me think you know that that the, the sort of deep internalization of the obligations and duties and rights that come with living in the Federation, like the perfect, the mirror uh, of that, is the Borg. And that's why it's such a great villain. It's because the Borg is pretty much like the Federation. It's the other society in Star Trek, in, in the Star Trek universe where, uh, scarcity has been solved uh, slightly differently, but it is. And it seems that, you know, um, what's funny about the, the, the Borg is the, the voice of the collective rings in every drone's head all the time. Uh, and it seems that this is what's going on in the Federation where the voice, uh, uh the, 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 uh general will uh you know Rousseau's general will seems to be internalized in everybody and and it rings in everybody's head and everybody has a very deep and strong sense of justice and yeah i i it's it's the part that's idealistic and it's the part we should strive for you know like uh the, the slow changing of norms of what's acceptable and what's not uh, it used to be 200, 200, years ago that torture was a fact of life and something that was totally accepted in judicial proceedings. It mm-hmm. no longer is. So um, norms uh, and what we consider human rights and justice slowly evolves over time. And so what you see in Star Trek is this, the, the terminal point of this. But it does change and it gets better over time. I, I, I strongly believe that. I I want to believe that you know like i'm thinking the the perfect example of that is um child labor it's no longer acceptable anywhere anywhere children should not be working i mean there are still places where where they are or they are forced to but children should not be working it is totally unacceptable it was perfectly acceptable and accepted in 19th century london so norms and 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 practices do change towards more justice we 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 have to hang our uh, hang, hang hang on to that uh, demonstrable fact to to project into the future and and to to be able to wrap our heads around how perfect the world of Star Trek is. Um, <laughs> I, I I suppose that that's the that's the sort of uh uh the message in there. Does that make sense?
1: Absolutely. Oh, absolutely that. We're just so fascinated listening to you. I think we just wanted to stay quiet and oh, let sorry. you do the talking. Honestly, I feel like I feel like I'm listening to a really good podcast right now, and I'm just like, oh wow. So, yeah, this is- with this episode, I think Barry, you and I have finally come into like the real. Our podcast can finally be put on the map because we officially have a very smart. intelligent conversation rather than the (laughs) two of
0: us just sort of screaming (laughs) into the void you know we are we are coming up a bit on time here we always try to keep our podcast so I have a (laughs) final a final question for you that is that I would say you know like I don't know Give it a shot and and, and folks listening. Okay. Yeah. So this is this is this is sort of a final question here. So you're you're running for president. All right. So let's just put this up. Yes, you're French born mm. person, so that's obviously constitutionally out of the question. That won't happen. <laughs> yeah. And and also you Prime may. Minister of Canada. Sure, that? sure. That works as well. We'd love to have you. That and you yeah, you may not necessarily want to run for some kind of political leadership. So we could also say, you know, perhaps someone has taken your book and put it forward put forward sort of a what's pro- the
2: program right that's the question what's yeah. the program
0: where do we start yeah so what would um this is the the main question here is what would your platform look like who would it who would appeal who would it appeal to in your eyes and what would
2: some of your main talking points be i think my platform if i were to have one yeah i could summarize it in, in, in very easy points uh free education for everybody from very early age and that includes you know early childhood development, everything free. Uh, w- we need to teach people and we need to get people um, interested in books and interested in math and interested in the beauty of the world because then they will multiply it. And uh, um, education should be free and should be universal and should start very early and should go all the way up to PhD for everybody. That's uh, if you want to. That would be my first things. Uh, uh, the second would be you need also to take care of bodies and of health. And and therefore, you need also to provide health care to everybody, uh, regardless of age, class, um, level of education, regardless of any kind of social circumstances. Health should not be within the orbit of the market. Uh, or the provision of health, at least research and mm, drug development and uh, you know uh, uh, medical devices, sure. But the provision of healthcare to everybody should be free and should be a lifelong thing. So that's the second point. The third point, I would say, aggressive investments in public goods. That is public transportation public uh, utilities, um, sustainable energy, and uh, research and development for the benefit of the commons, uh, much in the way, for instance, the GPS was developed, which is a perfectly public technology. That is run at the cost of, you know, a billion dollars a year by the Department of Defense, the US Department of Defense. And it has created so much wealth and goodness in society. And it's a bunch of satellites uh, uh, orbiting around the earth. And it's completely public. It's, it's, there's no, nothing more socialist than the GPS. So using that as a model, you know, be it for the internet, being for the provision of uh, free, cheap, and uh, non polluting energy um, infrastructures and not roads, but public transportation, uh, you know, very fast trains and things like that. Uh, so I would say that I would start there and, and, you know, like that's already a lot. If you have free healthcare, free education and a good public infrastructure, then, you know, you're in the game. And and that that platform could work in the United States. It won't because it's the United States and it's messed up. But that platform could actually be sold anywhere in the world because this is what people want. And it could work in Egypt. It could work in uh, Indonesia. It could work in Vietnam. It could work anywhere. It, I mean, work in the sense this is something that would be popular. Final point, Freedom. Because you don't have any of that, if, if it's not enjoyed freely, and, and if the basic human rights and freedoms are, guarant- are not guaranteed, then, you know, that won't work and people will not have fulfilling lives. A, fulfill, uh, a fulfilling life is a life where uh, my freedom multiplies the freedom of others. And I think that's Bakunin who said that once. It is. So, and, and when I say freedom, you know, I think, for instance, that prisons should be abolished. Uh, we should run the judicial system the same way it is run in Finland, for instance, or Norway, more humane, mm-hmm. and it's doable. Like these, these are developed countries, you know, and um, so yes, so so we could start with that, and then you know we'd be in the ballpark. It's it, and it wouldn't cost that much. And if you wanted to get crazy rich, even under these circumstances, you could. Uh, I think you might
0: find wealth elsewhere, too, in better places.
2: Yes, exactly. You might, I, I personally find wealth in reading philosophy all day long. It's not very productive, but it's actually very fulfilling.
1: I know we are a couple of years away, but is it too early to say Manusadia 2020? <laughs> oh, um, I'm still not even a U.S. citizen, man. So <laughs> it's going to take a little while. Uh, you and I both, my friend.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, 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 my wife is telling me I should do it, so I will probably do it. That's that's. I will probably do it. Yes, uh, maybe I'll start with Congress. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> and and the that... slogan will be "Live long
1: and prosper." I mean, <laughs> we can all live by that. Never, it's uh, never too late, Manu. Never too late. Uh, I, know, I know Barry said that was the last question, but this was something we discussed a while ago, Barry and I, and I don't know if he remembers, but this is more of a, uh, just to end on a positive, fun note, uh, just just as a wondering, what, if you were on an enterprise class, uh, enterprise style like Starship, where would you be?
2: Ah, uh, Um. I'm not a bridge guy and I'm low key. Uh, I, I, I would probably, I would probably be in the arboretum, I think, or, or in the, or in the, um, uh, cartography. Yeah. I think that that would be my thing. Uh, more than the bridge. I, I, I I'm afraid of excitement <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or maybe I'd be a school teacher. Actually, that, that would, that would be fun. I like it. Yeah, it's fun.
1: Since we're talking about fun, this was a lot of fun we I thank you from the bottom of my heart this same was for uh, me. same for this, me this this was such a pleasure and i i really am I'm just trying to figure out how did we talk about such smart things and then I have to go back to my action figure collection like yeah. I, I don't know
2: <laughs> well, I have to go make dinner for my kids so <laughs> <laughs> This is what anchors us in re- real life is what anchors us and makes us, you know, it, it living in the moment is very important, I think. Um, and Trek tells us that too. It, it, it certainly it, does. Right. I mean, yeah. Thank you very much. This was yeah. fun.
0: Well, we, we had so much fun too. So we'll, uh, We'll, we'll be moving on to our, our final thoughts segment now, folks. Thank you so much for, uh, for listening to this. And uh, I'll, I'll be enjoying editing this because I get to listen to the conversation all over again. So with that, we will move on to our final thoughts.
1: Just before we get out, a reminder, the book is Treconomics. The author is Manu Sadia. Manu, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Barry I don't know about you but that episode was something I genuinely think it's one of our best and even though we are a fairly new show and I'm sure we have a lot more to come between the two of us I think Manu Sadia and the ideas he had and just the way he spoke the fact that he's an author about a book that deals with economics in Star Trek but it's one of the best books I've read. I think that interview tells you why that author is really so good and de- and so deserving of that title. But I will, I'm I'm very interested to hear your final thoughts on this interview. What what did you think about it? Thanks, Shashank.
0: I'm going to start with a question. What is your passion? If you could do something really meaningful to you, would you do it? Many would say something like, Well, I really love what I do, but it might not make enough money to sustain my bills or other financial commitments. I understand that. And I suppose I'm lucky to be in a profession that, for now, is also a passion. I know in my heart, I would be a schoolteacher regardless of pay. Basically, I'd be happy to do the same job if my compensation was an assurance that my living necessities were fulfilled. For me, my job really never ends. I spend most evenings marking and planning. And though as the years go on, I find the work less strenuous, I also still find purpose and inspiration in what I do. Others work in a job that they may not necessarily like as much in order to have the free time on evenings and weekends to sustain a hobby, like, say, podcasting. If we were able to subscribe value to professions and hobbies, I suppose I would regard teaching as more important than any of my hobbies. I feel, as a noble profession... It does a lot to contribute to society and to the future. I do, however, feel that the 50 or 60 hours I put on average each week during the school year does entitle me to two months off in the summer, though I still find time to do about 10 hours of planning and review over the summers. I worry that our society has become so transactional that any human seen to not be maximizing their potential at all times is a failure or lazy. Shashank and Manu spoke of this, but it has really sort of hit me. What is the goal of our society? Is it quality of life? Is it production? There are statistics I've been made aware of that in the continental United States, there are more empty households than homeless people. For many Christians, I know, they will look at the world through a lens of their beliefs, that charity should be absolute, and whatever they do to the least in their society, that they do unto their Lord and Saviour. I also have friends who subscribe to political leanings that exist far to the left. They see the material circumstances of an individual or group as essential to understanding the oppressions they face, both overt and covert. And a great way to dismantle those oppressions is to give them a fair shake. I also know a ton of decent people from all walks of life who see poverty as something to be eliminated. And I get tired of the argument where the fear is that people who are given things will get lazy. Really, I see that as a question of entitlement and something that can be mitigated, given the proper education. Also, we live in a real-world game of Monopoly, and it feels like, in the same way as in the game, that people can and often do get punished for not rolling the dice properly. Fellow Star Trek fans, you love a franchise that made it a top priority to envision a future where we as human beings do away with poverty, not because of any inventions, but because it's the human thing to do. I'll end with a story. I teach social studies for my grade 7 students, and I have a lesson that I do to help them understand historic First Nations society, or as you may know it as Native American society, and as it differs from Euro-Canadian society. So we play a game called Pit. If you've heard of this game, great. Also bear with me, I'm going to explain it for those who haven't played it. There are about seven players, and... Each player gets 7 or so cards. Each card has a commodity of a particular value. For instance, wheat is a low commodity and gold and oil are higher commodities. And the goal is to corner a market of goods by getting all of one type of any commodity. In a hand of 7 cards, what a player gets is random, and the cards are shuffled before playing. It's important not to show any other players your cards as you don't want them to know any markets you may be close to cornering. From there, a bell goes off and players trade blindly, only able to shout an amount of cards of a similar commodity without actually saying that commodity. The shouting is loud and resembles a stock market scenario. The game ends when one player corners a market and yells, PIT! Points are tallied for that player who cornered a market, and I can't recall, but other points I think are given out for other things as well. Either way, the game is loud, competitive, and it's fast-paced. My students and I love it, but there can be hard feelings as lying can be a bit of an issue among students, especially when they want to win. After we play that game for a bit, we move on to a more First Nations-inspired way of playing Pit. Cards are still randomly shuffled and drawn, and students still get the same amount of cards in their hands. However, this time, everyone can see everyone else's cards and not their own. It's up to the group to organize and cooperate in trade to ensure everyone gets one of the markets cornered as fast as possible. There is still a fun and fast pace to the game, but the mood changes drastically. This time, the goal is collective benefit, and the students work hard to help one another find a market to corner. Once one student corners a market, he or she sets out to help others. The end is always satisfaction and congratulations all around. It can change the mood of an entire day for my classes sometimes. For instance, there were two students who were having a rough week, and that game of pit helped mend things between them, and I recall later that day they were sitting together in the cafeteria having lunch. So what I'm saying here is Manu's proposed society, much like Gene Roddenberry's and like the type I see among most Trek fans I know, is within grasp each person doing a bit will do a lot. So read Trekonomics, not as merely a fantastic book that a Trek fan did on a dare, but as an episode of Trek itself, one that explores the real possibilities that exist in our day-to-day to to create our very own Star Society. And I truly hope you find some time and space to do something you love. It is amazing what it can do for your state of mind.
1: Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode, faithful listener. I know we both did. We would love to hear your thoughts on the interview, whether you'd like us to keep doing more interviews, what kind of interviews you'd like to listen to us, and any comments you might have, positive, negative. We welcome them all. We are supporters of free speech, both Barry and I. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at at that's p-o-l-i-t-r-e-k-s we make funny jokes every now and then we try to say something smart about politics and star trek every now and then but mostly it's just us getting excited about our episode recordings and sharing cool gifts that involve star trek characters so all in all i think it's a really cool twitter account that you should just follow you can also find us on facebook at Polytrex, that's P-O-L-I-T-R-E-K-S. We're more active on Twitter, but every the the Facebook page also gets in some interesting posts every now and then. So hey, while you're at it, follow us in Facebook. And Barry, how else can people get in touch with us? Well,
0: people can also call into the show and leave a voicemail at 609-512-LLAP. That's 609-512-5527. We are Paula on the Tricorder Transmissions podcast network, along with many other fabulous shows. Is the Tricorder Transmissions podcast, Shore Leave, Trek Ranks, Drawing Trek, Disco Trek, and Reading Trek now. I'm very excited for this new podcast that we have out. I'm spending most of my paycheck getting some of the books that they'll be covering over the podcast, so we do recommend you check it out too. Also, if you'd like to support the Tricorder Transmissions, you can always click on that Patreon button up on the top right side of our website. It's always appreciated for folks who would like to give some of their hard-earned Quatloos and Latinum to us, and if you're still on the lookout for the all things trek, we do highly recommend checking out Dan and Bill, the Trek Geeks podcast. Always loads of fun there. Also, we do intend on spamming our sites with the articles and different web pages and such that we've used to research the episodes that we do. So always look out for that. And in this case, we'll also include a link for you yourself to purchase Mister Manusadia's book, Trekonomics, as well.
1: Just a bookend the episode. Both Barry and I highly enjoyed the book. We might have enjoyed the interview just as much, and we hope you check both of them out. On that note, live long and prosper. And onward to our star society.